Rabbi Gordon Tucker. It is such a privilege for me to sit in conversation with you and, of course, to welcome you to Exit Strategy. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. I feel the same sense of privilege myself. You are truly one of the greatest teachers I know. You were the longtime senior rabbi at Temple Israel Center in White Plains, New York, and you are now serving there as senior rabbi emeritus. Rabbi Emeritus is always a nice title to have. I know this. <laughs> <laughs> Since September of 2020, you have served as Vice Chancellor for Religious Life and Engagement at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. And of course, you are a founding board member of Plaza Jewish Community Chapel. Let's just jump in with, based on your career in synagogue and seminary life and leadership, are end-of-life conversations and issues enough at the forefront in our communal spaces? What do you think about that? It's hard to say that it could ever be really enough. But happily, it, it is not being ignored. There are all sorts of things that have happened over the years. The rabbinical assembly, of which I am a member, and one graduates and is ordained at JTS, one essentially automatically becomes a member of the rabbinical assembly. It has something that is colloquially known as the law committee. Its full name is the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards. Um, I was a member of that committee for 25 years. One of the uh, topics that it took up at great length were end-of-life issues, and it's done that several times. And one of the things that has emerged from it uh, some years ago is an approved multi-page advanced directive that tracks what the, the law committee had approved in terms of various decisions that have to be made when life is nearing its end and should treatment be continued, should, should certain kinds of intervention be stopped, etc. And all of these things are, um, are bundled into this uh, document that people are urged to fill out with the help of their clergy. So that's been there for a long time. The seminary itself partners with the rabbinical assembly and local congregations to do various kinds of adult education. And just recently, there was one on, on end-of-life issues. But I think ultimately, it's going to depend on the retail end of this. That is, people have to be willing to turn to their spiritual leaders. And even more important is that the spiritual leaders have to be equipped and trained to be able to have those conversations. That does happen in, in rabbinical school uh, here at JTS. And I know it happens in the other rabbinical schools of other movements as well. And for sure, this is, if you will, a top-down conversation. Uh, when the clergy really suggests that this is a conversation we should be having, then the congregation responds to that. We shouldn't forget that there's been an enormous amount of uh, progress on this. Yep. Uh, I do remember when the whole idea of, of hospice care was still pretty controversial in the Jewish community because we had this legacy of the body and life is a gift from God and we shouldn't be giving up on it. And the idea that one would opt for palliative care and forego various kinds of interventions was somehow considered at odds with, uh, with the Jewish ethos. And it took a lot of people Across the board, uh, there were Orthodox rabbis who were really quite brave, I think, beginning to change minds on this. 
I remember when Jewish Theological Seminary, when they used to partner with both uh, NBC and ABC for, you know, different kinds of television or radio programs. And one of them was done with Cicely Saunders, who was the, you know, really one of the great founders of hospice care. That was a, a really important and influential program. So when you think back to that and where we are today, we've, we've come a very long way. But again, you know, there's always going to be more to do. For sure. And and I look back at our trajectory here at Plaza from when we began and where things are today. The conversation has been elevated dramatically. I'm happy about that because we know when people talk about this subject, that when the moment happens, perhaps it can be a little bit more palpable. And certainly people are a bit more prepared. When someone gets a bad diagnosis, when bad things happen to good people, where do you go with that? Rabbis often find that the best place to start is with our own classics. The human condition hasn't changed all that much over the millennia. Like there were tragedies then as there are tragedies today. It happens that just yesterday I was officiating at the, at the burial of a three and a half day old infant. We're not the mm -hmm. first to experience that. Happily, we experience it far more seldom than was once the case. But mm -hmm. we, of course, have stories about that in our in the Talmud and in the Midrash, Midrashic literature. We can learn things from the ways in which the stories were told, the things that seemed to, uh, to work and to help people, and from the legal traditions that grew up around it. And I think that's one of the things that rabbis find, and not just rabbis, by the way, Jewish educators, I have to say this, a, a really wonderful Jewish educator that I worked with for years made the point, and she was absolutely right, that the Jewish educators, the, the, the people who teach in the synagogues and in the day schools, they are often what, what she called the first responders. <laughs> that is, when there are mm -hmm. issues in a family, it's often the teachers who are the people who hear about it first. For all of us who are involved in this, we have to recognize that there is wisdom to be had in so many places. I mean, just a good example, I'm sure so many people have read that wonderful book by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal. And there's an enormous amount, but not only of, you know, of data and uh, information in there, but real serious reflection on what it is to be mortal, to be finite, what the role of medicine is. We shouldn't ignore things like that. And I think we don't. So all of this blends together into a, a great reservoir of resources. You know, the bottom line is you need what's called in Yiddish sechel. You need some common sense as to what is actually going to help someone in these moments and what is not. That can't exactly be taught. <laughs> I mean, time and experience teaches it to you. You don't learn that in a classroom, really. Earlier this year, you delivered the eulogy for Rabbi Harold Kushner, who authored When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That was a book that was authored in 1981. It's been read by millions of people, a best-selling inspirational classic that many people turn to in difficult moments. Why do you think the book has such enduring popularity? So I think when they come to something like Harold Kushner's book, one of the things they are being told is, it's not about you. It's actually not about anything that you've done. 
God's power is not the power of a human dispenser of benefits and punishments. That's not how God's power is manifest in the world. And you can relieve yourself of the burden of guilt. Now that comes Mm -hmm. with a price. You have to recognize that things may happen that you don't have control over. But the one thing you do have control over, and this I think was in many ways the essence of what Krishna was trying to teach, was what you do have control over is what are you going to do with it now that it's happened? What are you going to learn from it? How are you going to reconstruct your life? How are you going to make sure that even a tragic death in your family is not going to pull a marriage apart, is not going to affect the ways in which you not only love and relate to other children that you have, but that you'll be able to take joy in the things that that they achieve? That's the real question, and that's the real test. And I think as many others who have written in a similar vein have been very helpful in that respect. Certainly, um, it's, it's part of the journey when something tragic like this happens and the evolution of the road that one takes when this tragedy happens. We've seen it where people are able to come out on the other side and be purposeful and do something with this. And then there are those who are not able to do that. It's a personal journey like this whole life is, right? I was at my congregation for 24 years. There are many colleagues who have been at congregations much longer than that. You have certain experiences that kind of sear themselves into your memory. There was an occasion where a young woman in her 20s died. It was was really a tragic situation. Her father was so unable to extricate himself from that pain so that a year later, when we were unveiling a monument at her grave, he asked me whether he could say a few words. And I said, well, of course, you know, and he got Mm -hmm. up and he said, I feel that I have nothing left to live for. His wife and his other daughter were sitting there and there were a couple of grandchildren, right? That was a truly devastating moment for him to to feel that way and for them to hear him say that in their presence. Uh, now, he was telling the truth, right? He was, he was being honest about himself, but he needed the kind of help that I, I guess I, I didn't know during that year just how much help he needed in that respect. You know, these are things that you remember and, and you try to prevent them from happening again. I know that you have a PhD in philosophy from Princeton. Is your philosophical journey around end of life done or does it continue to evolve? Oh, it continues to evolve. Uh, It absolutely (laughs) continues to evolve. It does. And I don't know that I would call it so much a philosophical journey as just a human journey. It's in, in many ways more about aging than it is about some, you know, sudden philosophical insight. I don't think I can say that this is true of everybody, but I do think it's true of probably the majority, maybe even the large majority of people, that the fear that you might have about death when you're in your 20s or 30s absolutely has has lessened enormously 
now that I'm 72 years old, uh, I hope I won't be offending any <laughs> any of your listeners here. But you know, when you, no. when you when you know you have to go to the dentist, the closer it gets, the more terrified you are, right? Right. And this is seems to be the exact opposite. Well, I guess when you're in your 20s and 30s, the idea that life is going to come to an end is not a very uh, digestible thought because you have so much that you still want to do. As you get older, you realize this is part of, of what the meaning of life is. The listeners may, may know the name of Bill McKibben. He is, uh, he's noted primarily for his work on environmental issues and you know, a very <laughs> important figure in that field, but he's also been writing about the ways in which technology in our society has been developing in a, such an unrestrained way. One of the things that he wrote about recently and expressed real concern about is this kind of whole idea of life extension, that somehow, you know, people are working, they have a goal of extending life to, you know, 150 years, you know, set aside just whether this is even financially sustainable at all. That's a whole, that's an issue for economists to worry about. Exactly. But what McKibben has said is there is an everyday heroism, if you think about it, in bringing up your children fully aware that they are going to supplant you. That's what human civilization is. So a world without death is kind of a world without meaning. It's a sentence mm -hmm. without a period at the end of it. And until you put a period at the end of a sentence, you don't know what the meaning of the sentence is. We learn that as we get older. Do you think that this new generation of rabbinical students are looking to end-of-life conversations in a different way? Look, students today, so many of them, and really the majority of them, are very eagerly taking many units of clinical pastoral education where they are putting themselves squarely into that arena. They are dealing with illnesses of all kinds and inevitably facing some of these issues about aging and mortality and end of life. And I think they're doing that because they know, particularly since they are younger, I mean, we people can come to rabbinical school at various stages of life, and they do, but overall, they, we're talking about people who are of a younger generation. They know that they have to kind of prepare themselves in ways that they're not aging yet themselves. But they have to get some of that, that wisdom of aging before they age, if they're going to be helping and, and counseling and, and comforting and consoling people who are facing this in their lives. It's, it's one of the real challenges of the rabbinate. How is a 28-year-old, a 30-year-old right out of rabbinical school going to be able to talk to a 80-year-old woman who is having trouble with the fact that she can't she can't reach the bar that she set for herself earlier in life. But they have to do it. I didn't start doing congregational work. I was at the seminary. I was on the faculty there. I didn't start doing congregational work till I was 43 years old. And even that I thought was kind of young right? Right. in a way. It's a kind of awesome to me that 28 and 30-year-olds go out and do this and do it successfully, but it takes some real preparation, and they, they recognize that, and that's why they are, they are seeking out those sources of wisdom. And CPE, this clinical pastoral education, is a very important part of that. It's not the only avenue, and they, um, I think, are very much aware that this is something that 
is an essential part of, uh, of the life of service that they're committed to. I'm curious if you have any ideas on how we can, in communities, really elevate this conversation. You think it comes from the clergy? You think it's top-down as well? In my conservative movement, a little over 15 years ago, there was a project that uh, had to do with mitzvah and obligation and command and the role that that plays in a, in a society that is very enamored of and, and justifiably of autonomy and the fact that we have to be able to understand what our own needs are and our own expressions of things. And yet, the tradition insists that there is such a thing as commandment. In many congregations, including mine, little groups grew up to really talk about this and and to read things together and to discuss them together. Clergy wasn't there all the time, but they knew that they were committed to something that they felt was meaningful. Something like that can certainly happen and should happen, and maybe is happening in certain communities um, mm-hmm. around end of life. And that's that's a kind of a partnership between us clergy people that are, and when I say clergy, I'm, I mean rabbis, cantors, and, and Jewish educators for this purpose. I'm, I would call them clergy for the reasons that I said before. They are first responders. They're there as resources. There has to be a partnership with with people in the community who feel, look, this is important for me. And the people who will who will know that are the people who have been through it recently, who have had to make yeah. decisions about their parents. By the way, it's not just making decisions about parents in their 90s or centenarians. It's sometimes you have to make decisions about neonates who are tragically facing the possible end of a life that's barely begun. And there are decisions about that. People who have faced this are, go- are going to be the people who will be helpful in creating more conversation, and it will help them to know that they have support in the community. You're so right. And back to your point that you said initially, people who go through these traumatic and difficult journeys, hopefully they evolve and come out on the other side to really be our teachers and to help guide us in terms of how we can support and elevate all these important conversations. Rabbi Gordon Tucker, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. As I said initially, you are always a teacher of mine, and I thank you for your wisdom. Thank you, Stephanie. It's always a pleasure talking with you at any time, but uh, to be able to do it on a, you know, what is a weighty and important topic for all of us human beings is a, a special privilege. So thank you for that. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation. I urge you to visit our show notes and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic And I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy. Mm